of 1 Timothy in chapter 6, edging closer towards the conclusion, but looking tonight at verses 3 through 10 of 1 Timothy 6. I like to read our text and then some verses that follow all the way down to verse 19. First Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul has instructed about many things and then most recently about slaves serving masters and he says at the end of verse 2, at the end of verse 2, 1 Timothy 6, 2, he tells Timothy who is pastoring in Ephesus, teach and exhort these things. And then we pick it up at verse 3, God's word If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And reading on, verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot. Blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man can, has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. God's word. Shall we ask for his blessing? O Lord Jesus Christ, we sit once more beneath your word and we ask that you would speak to us and visit us with grace from above. We acknowledge that we need the whole counsel of God and we acknowledge that we 
Don't even know, need, we don't even know what particular word we need tonight. Often it's but a phrase, a word by which your spirit convicts. We pray that you'd visit every heart here tonight. We pray you'd visit those, Lord, who cannot be here, who are at home for our sick. We lift up prayers for their healing for our sister Susie. We pray, God, that you would give to her healing, that there be no severe injury here. We pray that you'd sustain her. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak into our hearts and glorify your great name, that we might acknowledge you as the Lord of lords. In the name of our Savior, we pray this. Amen. Well, people of God, tonight we come to First Timothy again, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to this servant of God who's to preach the word, and now the Apostle in the sixth chapter, as we see, is is turning an eye in different ways to wealth and to money. It's said sometimes that, that you should follow the money. If you want to know why two brothers are angry at each other, if you want to know why a business has made this decision, follow the money. Money makes the world go round. Money is at the root of a lot of decisions and motivations, isn't it? The Apostle Paul is speaking here to Timothy, who must teach and exhort the Word of God, and that's a great blessing to have God's truth. It gives us a clear perspective on money and on all things, but the Apostle is very aware that there are some in Ephesus who, who teach otherwise. Remember, we at the start of this letter, we, we saw these false teachers spoken of when Paul said of them that there were these ones who, verse 4 of chapter 1, Give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification. There were these, these false teachers in Ephesus who were big on speculating, who, who, who liked to embellish the stories of the Old Testament, who liked to make up these fables about Bible characters or debate genealogies, who is related to, to whom and so forth. And the apostle spoke about false teachers in chapter 4, about those who spoke lies and hypocrisy and said you shouldn't marry, you shouldn't eat certain foods, and, and promoted this kind of asceticism. And now the apostle comes to speak of the false teachers again, and we get the impression that in Ephesus there is a great danger here of false teachers. And now he goes so far as tonight to say that they use godliness, they view religion as a means of financial gain. That's how low they have sunk. But the hope the apostle has for the church in Ephesus is the true teaching. Timothy, you teach and you exhort these things. And brothers and sisters, we're reminded tonight that we, we need the word of God, but we should also be reminded tonight that we have, we have the supreme prophet. We have Christ Jesus who comes from heaven to reveal to us the will of God concerning our salvation and who executes his office perfectly. And the hope for the church in the world, as, as Paul's hope for the church in Ephesus, so our hope today as we look around and see all kinds of wickedness and oftentimes greediness and materialism and all these things that threaten the church, what's our great hope? It's Christ's word. It's Christ who speaks the truth. And that's enough for his people. So let's rejoice tonight that we have a Savior who calls us to be satisfied with true riches. Let's look first of all at... Verses 3 through 5, where we see a life turned in upon itself, turned in upon itself. At the end of those, those few verses, verse 5, 
we read that they suppose that godliness, or you could say religion or piety, they suppose it's a means of gain. Now, there's people teaching today who are prosperity, gospel-type preachers who, who preach a health and wealth message, right, that if you believe enough, then you'll be enriched. That's probably not what he's saying here, but he's, I think, saying that these men have discovered that if they put on the pretense of, of religion, if they appear godly, then they'll be received and people will pay them for their teaching so they can make money off the gospel. They can make money off religion. Now, how does one arrive at such a low place that he would sell the gospel for money? Well, the apostle says, verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. The false teachers will not take the word of Christ to heart. They will not drink in the healthy truth of the Savior. They are resistant. They won't come to this well of life. They will not put Christ at the center. They will not give him his place as the true prophet sent from God. They won't give him his place as, as the centerpiece of the church, right? Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and all the promises. He is the Lamb of God. He, he is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Savior. And if they won't bow down to the word of Christ, then what do they really have? We live in a culture where many have rejected the word of Christ. It's not a respect for the scriptures any longer. Many will not even pay lip service to, to the Bible. And then what's left? If you, if you won't give a place to the wholesome words of Christ, well, then you, you end up inventing your own truth. You invent your own reality. You live in a delusional state. These men, he says, are proud. Verse 4, proud. Notice, in fact, they, they possess three basic evil qualities here. They're proud, knowing nothing, and obsessed with disputes. First of all, there's pride. That's the source of all trouble, isn't it? Pride is the haughty heart that won't bow down. It says, I know better, I know best. I don't need to submit to someone else's word. To usurp Christ's place, of course, is the ultimate pride. When God sends his son from above and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And we say, eh, I don't think I need to do that. But when there's pride, then there's lack of understanding. And so Paul goes on to say, they know nothing, verse 4. He is proud, knowing nothing. Or one translation puts it, he's a pompous ignoramus. A pompous ignoramus. Doesn't know anything, can't understand. William Hendrickson writes that living in a mental, moral, and spiritual world of his own making, he is not completely, he is completely out of touch with reality. If we won't listen to Christ, then in the end we know nothing. We know nothing. And pretty soon then we become those who are nothing but obsessed with disputes. Kent Hughes and Brian Chapel in their commentary, one of them writes, I have spent endless hours with such people who cannot or will not grasp the plain meaning of a sentence or a paragraph in its context, but rather fix on a word or soundbite and give it a definition that defies lexicons, history, and logic. Nothing dissuades them, nothing informs them, they understand nothing 
and they enjoy it. Such is the proud heart. Will not be persuaded, cannot know, because will not bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result then of all of this, the bitter fruit, is what? They're obsessed with disputes. They are, as, as one translates it, they are those who have a morbid craving for controversies and word battles. Morbid craving because the word really has the idea of sickness. They're sick over this. They love the disputes. They're sick if they can't get into a fight. They're obsessed with this. It's a disease. The false teachers here argue about things the Bible doesn't speak about. They love to speculate. They love to argue about the things that the word doesn't address. It's a true sign of spiritual sickness, isn't it, to love, to quarrel, to quibble, and dispute. And what it brings in tow, then, we read in verse 4, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings. That's a congregation you want to belong to. What a, what a pleasant evening service there. Those sitting next to you envy your spiritual gifts, and the people afterwards want to fight with you, and no matter what you say, you're suspected. Delightful. Proud, knowing nothing, obsessed with disputes. Such is the life of those who reject the wholesome words, the life-giving words of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a life turned in. Upon itself, isn't it? A life turned in upon itself. When, when Christ the sinner is rejected, what's left is me, me. And so it is that these godless teachers now suppose that godliness is a means of gain, verse 5. They suppose that, that religion can be used for themselves. They would, they would use God to enrich themselves. They would use God's people for their own profit, they would use the office of minister or teacher to enrich themselves. Such a life in the end has nothing but itself. It may seem like a wonderful thing to be a pompous ignoramus, just like a man who is full of himself may think he's quite something, but just like a, a balloon looks big until it's pricked and is reduced to a quarter ounce of latex, and you realize it's just filled with hot air. So these teachers in Ephesus, there's no life apart from Christ. It's death and destruction because there's no escaping God's wrath without the blood of Christ. There's no knowing Jesus Christ without bowing before his word. This is the only access. This is the only way to come to the wholesome words, to consent to these words, to bow at the word of the living Lord Jesus Christ, the King. So we look at these false teachers tonight. We can examine our own hearts and say, but is my life consumed with myself? Am I pompous? Am I humble before the word of Christ to be taught and instructed? Or do I value my own opinion above that? Do we come to the Lord saying, I need your light to shine upon me. I need you, Lord Christ, to speak into my life because I know nothing apart from you. And do we yield to every word the Lord speaks or only to our favorite words, the words that we think that we fulfill pretty easily? Or do we bow before the word of Christ, the wholesome word that gives life? 
And we could ask ourselves tonight, do I find pleasure in disputing or do I long to be united with God's people in the truth? When I stand for the truth, do I stand for the truth or do I stand for me? Is it about my ego? Is it about my delight in pointing out others' faults? And we could ask the question tonight, how do I look at the connection between Christ and gain? Are there ways in which I would use Jesus for my personal profit apart from his glory? That I treat Christ as a kind of genie in a bottle that I conjure up to give me good things that I want? Would I use his people and use his church with me in mind? Isn't this often the mentality that that is behind church shopping and church hopping? What's in it for me? Christ exposes here to us tonight the ugliness of a conceited life filled with self. It looks like a big life. It looks like something. But it's a lot of hot air. And in the end, it's death. The Lord exposes that to us here because he calls Timothy away from this into a true teaching. And this is the true teaching he gives. Let's move on to look at verses 6 through eight here, where we see a life satisfied in Christ. Not a life turned in upon itself, but a life that's wrapped around and filled with the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul doesn't say that godliness is not a means of gain. He actually says the opposite. He says godliness is gain. In fact, he says it's great gain. But he says it's godliness with contentment. So there's a difference. The false teachers are seeking financial gain, but the apostle here is speaking of spiritual gain. Verse 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. The word that's used here, the scholars note, is the word that various Greek philosophies use, like the Stoics to to speak of a kind of self-sufficiency. You know, the Stoics, we're not going to be moved. We're not going to smile. We're not going to frown. They're going to grin. They're just going to have, have an unmoved face as, as they face trials or joys, not be moved by anything. They, they possess a contentment with whatever the circumstances. But, but, but that kind of contentment is, is a contentment in self. It's me I have power over. I won't be moved or swayed by anything. But this is not a self-sufficiency, the apostle speaks of the word contentment, but a Christ-sufficiency, a Christ-sufficiency, a life that relies upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his resources, the one who bore our sins upon the tree and who purchased for us peace with God and who gives us everlasting blessing. Godliness, that kind of religion with that contentment in Christ, that is great gain. It's the greatest gain in all the universe. The apostle himself often writes about how he didn't covet anyone's silver or gold. He, he didn't come preaching to get from people. He speaks, you know, even of the fact that he had learned in all circumstances, whether well-fed or hungry, to be content. The apostle had contentment in Christ. And he's told us already in this letter back in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Godliness, 
true religion is great gain. Let me remind you tonight of your gain, of your riches. Have you counted them up lately? You have a complete pardon of all your sins, past, present, and future. You have the perfect obedience, the perfect record of Christ credited to your account as if you obeyed every law yourself. You have reconciliation with God. You have God with you always, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. You know that God is for you, not against you. That in every circumstance, God is committed to working things together for your good. You have the spirit of adoption, testifying in your heart that you are God's child. You have the protective care of the God who never sleeps and never slumbers. You have access to the throne of grace at all hours of day and night. You have the complete revelation, the the word of God, a copy of the book. You have an inheritance in heaven that can never be taken from you. You have joy inexpressible and full of glory. Rejoicing and loving a Savior you've never yet met face to face. You have the promise that you will reign with Christ forever. You have the assurance that you are the first fruits of a new creation that you stand to inherit. Godliness is great gain. Godliness with contentment in Christ Jesus. We brought nothing into the world. It's certain we can carry nothing out of the world in terms of material goods. But we have the thing that is ours for eternity. We have Jesus Christ. We have life with God. The apostle, as he speaks those words, is perhaps thinking of Job's words, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Come into the world helpless and penniless, and we die. Penniless. We have no natural resources in ourselves. No one was born into this world with, with goods, and no one takes it with them. It's the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's the Lord who alone is, well, the theological word is a seity. He possesses independence. He has life in himself. He, he needs nothing outside of himself. He's the only being there is who needs nothing outside of himself. But we need everything. Now, riches deceive us into thinking that if we own them right now, we have power, that we have protection, that we have security. Money can do a lot of things, can't it? It can purchase for you creature comforts. It can get you access into certain social circles. It can gain for you medical care or clothing or attention to your body that makes you look beautiful, can bring you all kinds of security. But we're reminded of the rich fool who said to his soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. Christ says to us that you you brought nothing into this world, and it's certain you can carry nothing out. As they say, there are no luggage racks on hearses, and I've never seen a hearse towing a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. 
John Stott writes, So our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. And then he provides this humor. Writing, the officiating minister at the funeral of a wealthy woman was asked by the overly curious how much she had left. The minister replied, she left everything. She left everything. Birth and death, these are your vantage point, God says. Take a look at your birth, take a look at your death, and then evaluate all the material goods in terms of that. What you came with and what you leave with. And then tell me, what's it all worth? It does have a value, right? It's good to have food and clothing and a car and a house to serve the Lord and do many things. But how are we evaluating it? If you give your life to gain earthly riches, if that's your ambition, what will you have when you die? Jesus asked, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What was that TV show? I don't know if it's still around. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You can awe and goo over these spectacular homes, luxuries beyond imagination, gadgets and things you couldn't even dream up. And yet, I would suspect that many of the owners had vacuous souls living for this world but nothing upon death. We won't carry it with us into the next life. What matters is not what we own, but who owns us. Not material wealth, but spiritual wealth. Do we belong to the Lord? Are we his children? Are our sins paid for? Do we have an inheritance above? Do we have joy and peace in God that can never be taken from us? Is Christ our sufficiency? If so, then we can say with Paul, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. If I have what I need to fulfill my calling before God, if I have what I need to do the task that he set before me, then I have everything I need. And God always gives to each of his children whatever they need for their assignment upon the earth, doesn't he? The Lord is the Lord of providence. We confess that, don't we? That nothing comes to us by chance, but everything from his hand. So there's no luck, there's no fate, there's no chance. To each God apportions it out. The wealth you'll have or the poverty you have, the health you have or what sickness you have, the joys you have or the trials you have, it's come from his hand according to his eternal and sovereign and wise will in which he's decided this is the best for your soul or this is the best way you can glorify him or this is the way he wants to use you in this life. And our great joy is to not be ashamed at his coming sitting in some mansion as those who squandered our lives and resisted the Lord. We want to live as those who know that we can't take it with us when we die. The earthly riches are for this life if God gives them and to be used for his kingdom. We can learn to be more content, can't we, in Christ? To be more thankful. To walk in close fellowship. False teachers didn't get it. Many of the world don't get it. They may look at you and shake their heads and think you're poor saps. You know, you keep giving your money away. You've been deceived. You. They don't get it. They have no idea the Christian home is filled with treasure. 
A marriage where a husband and wife can forgive each other, can encourage each other, can walk together as co-heirs of the grace of God. Children who are learning to know the Lord Jesus Christ. A home where people sing, people pray and fellowship with God, where, where they read the word, God speaks to them. The world has no idea of the riches filled with the home, uh, the home of the Christian. And if the burglar breaks in your home tomorrow, he's probably not going to take away the things that, that really matter, is he? And yet we forget it sometimes, don't we? Let me press it upon us tonight and ask, are you content? Are you content? Are you content in the Lord that you have a Christ sufficiency? He's my wealth. He's my happiness. Have you been complaining? Have you envied the prosperity of the wicked like Asaph does in Psalm 73? And do you need God to take you by the hand and lead you, as it were, into his temple and show you that in the end they're going to be swept away? But though your heart and flesh fails, God is your portion forever. God is your inheritance. Are you living near to God, delighting in him, making much of the riches that you possess? We forget sometimes, don't we? Riches are attractive. But Christ who loves us, who has died for our greed and covetousness, who has suffered as the man stripped naked, has bore our guilt to bring us to God, to bring us riches in God, and to give us a new heart that delights in the Lord and says there's nothing greater than to know my God and Savior. So the life turned in upon itself is not our life tonight. We have a life satisfied in Christ. And if you don't have that tonight, this is the summons. That if you die without that, then you die. Not just materially without anything, but eternally without anything. The great Savior he is who calls us to himself. And in calling us to himself, then he would guard us for himself. And that's the final point tonight. A life that must avoid the trap. Verses 9 and 10. Let's look at those finally. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Wealth lures lots of people into its harem. Riches are always proselytizing and making worshipers of them. And because our Savior loves us, he would, he would warn us of this. When we set our hearts on riches, when we determine that I will be rich and I will stay rich, that this is the purpose of my heart and life, then we fall into temptation and into destruction, God says. It is a snare that grabs us, that holds us, that keeps us, and drags us to hell. So the apostle is giving a very sober here warning that your salvation would be threatened by a love for riches. To set your heart on being rich is to destroy yourself. 
To love money is to be an idolater, as we, as we saw this morning. And all kinds of evil spring from this love for money. One kind of craving for money leads to all kinds of other cravings, right? It goes hand in hand. Just, just look at so many of the rich. Yearning then for honor, then wanting to be popular, then wanting sexual satisfaction, then wanting this and this and this. And it's a life again turned in upon itself. What a poor trade it is to give money the place of worship and trust in God. John Cook brings this quote, Many a millionaire, after choking his soul with gold dust, has died from melancholy. And then William Hendrickson has a great illustration of that very fact, or with this little story he tells. He writes, Among the pangs, the numerous pangs, of those who pierce themselves through, among the, these pangs are unrest, boredom, dissatisfaction, gloom, envy. He writes, In the pocket of a rich man who had just committed suicide was found $30,000 and a letter which read in part, I've discovered during my life that piles of money do not bring happiness. I'm taking my life because I can no longer stand the solitude and boredom. When I was an ordinary workman in New York, I was happy. Now that I possess millions, I am infinitely sad and prefer death. It could be written a million times over, couldn't it? Thousands upon thousands have had the same experience. They were at one point in a simpler way of living, had a kind of happiness, and they set their heart on riches, and they obtained they attain all these riches, and yet in the end they find it's empty, empty, empty. Even among those who aren't regenerate, they get bored with life, but it's even worse than that, isn't it? The life set on finding a happiness outside of Christ finally caves in, and there is nothing for those who don't have Jesus. Let me close with a word to any here who resists this teaching in their heart. To any who would listen at home or somewhere else on this night or would listen to this message in days to come. Do you think you're the exception? Do you hear this word tonight? Yes, riches can be dangerous. Yes, people, you know, they fall into all that, but not me. Is that the response of your heart tonight to God's word? That you're the one exception. The word says if you desire to be rich, you'll fall into temptation and a snare, into many harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and damnation. And is your response to say, but not me, I'm the exception to that? Or... Do you justify yourself by playing with words? I don't love riches, I just like them. I don't love riches, I just love what they do for me. Why do I bring that up? Why do I bring that up? I bring it up because this is a sobering warning for a people who live in the lap of luxury and who are bombarded by advertisements insisting that this is life to possess, to have, to be rich. 
And the word is saying to us, if you set your heart on riches, you will end up in eternal destruction. And it's easy for us to walk away from these warnings without being shaken by it at all. But we see it time and again that those who pursue riches end up in sorrows. And even if we don't see it, we know that's the end of them, the Bible says. And so let me say to you young people and you young adults, as you look at your life now and you you think ahead, if you're saying to yourself, my goal is to be rich, then you're saying to yourself, my goal is to lose Jesus. Money can be a good thing. Used in the right way, and the Lord lavishes it upon his people at times, doesn't he? Job was very rich. But if we set out, if we determine that that's my life, that's where I'll find happiness, that's what I'm going to get, then we pierce ourselves through with many sorrows. The sorrows are a multitude broken lives and broken marriages and estranged children and excommunications from church and disease and sickness and hopelessness and suicide and wars and murder and the Christ who loves his people warns us don't go that way so I say it to you tonight and especially to the young people and the young adults who have to make decisions now and choices about where you're headed. What's your goal? What's your purpose? Have you learned that godliness with contentment is your great gain? Have you contemplated what your Savior has done for you? If riches were the great gain, Jesus would have died to give you infinite riches in this life. But your great gain is to know God through Christ. To be at peace with him. To know the joy of serving his kingdom. To inherit, yes, we will inherit a new heavens and new earth that is beyond anything we can imagine. There will be material gain. But at the heart of it is this. To know God through Christ. May God write this word upon our hearts and may we take it up as our weapon to slay all the lies that are aimed at us day after day. By this word, may Christ keep us for that great day. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we lift up our hearts. We feel the pull, the tug, the allurement. And we need to be kept by your word. We pray that Christ would speak into our hearts. We pray for our children, for the young people, the young adults. As they must make choices about marriage, about vocation. About how they will look about possessions. We pray, Lord, for grace to them. And for grace for us all. Lord, you alone can keep our hearts. We pray that you would. We pray, Lord, for those who've been taken captive and are being carried away, that you would awake them, that you would draw them back. We pray that we'd glorify you, Father, by rejoicing over your Son and exulting that Christ is ours, he who is all the wealth of heaven. In his name we pray, amen.